We had this beautiful, passionate kiss. I ran out the door, come back an hour later, and his truck's still on the driveway. And my son said, why is dad here? I said, I don't know. Hi, I'm Chelsea B. For those of you who don't know me, let me introduce myself. I'm not a life coach, a therapist, or a certified anything, really. Heck, I don't even have a college degree. I am, however, a regular old human with a huge heart and problems just like you. If you're looking for a podcast to solve all of life's mysteries and show you how to become super successful, you're in the wrong place. This is Beyond the Picket Fence, a podcast that tells the behind the scenes of people's lives to remind you that no one is perfect. This is officially your invitation to take a break from trying to keep it all together. Let's get real. This episode is brought to you by The Parlor Hair and Body Salon. With a quick reminder, it's okay to take time for yourself. Welcome to season two. If you're new here, you should know that I am a heart warrior mother. Having a son with a heart defect changed my life. I witnessed him go into cardiac arrest for 36 terrifying minutes. And I do talk about it a lot. If you want the full story, you can listen to my first episode called Me. All of this to say, February is Heart Month. So not only are we back, but we are launching season two with heart stories. I only have experience as a heart mom, but guess what? There are also heart warrior spouses, friends, children of heart warriors, and of course, experiences as heart warriors themselves. Today's story is the wife's. One in every five deaths is due to heart disease. Many of those are heart attacks making heart disease the number one cause of death. This is Heather's story. Hi guys, I am Dr. Heather Brown. I'm a psychotherapist in Orange County and a writer and a speaker. And I have a heart story to share with you guys. People's stories are never one dimensional. And while I wanted to get a heart story, Heather's story is more than that. So we go back to where it all starts, birth. I was born into a family with a mom who was a paranoid schizophrenic and a father who adored her, but wasn't really strong. And I'm 59, so it was a really different lifetime at that point and mental health wasn't explored. It was certainly taboo. And so... My dad called my mom's mental illness, Ginny's little problem. Mm. And so she, she was glorious. Uh, I think anybody who's a schizophrenic, there's a place of genius in that. Um, very colorful. I adored her. She was magical. And it was also unbelievably hard and frustrating. I have an older sister. I'd come home and you'd knock on the door because you just didn't want to walk in because you didn't know what kind of state she'd be in. And I'd say, Hey mom. And then I would listen for what room she was in to get an idea of what I was walking into. Certain rooms were okay. Certain rooms were questionable and certain rooms. All I wanted to do was disappear. So there's different places in schizophrenia of, is she doing pretty well? And she's good. And then that would be like the living room. Um, or that would be outside was great. If she was outside, it was great. 
But where she's struggling would be the back porch, the bathroom, hmm. maybe the kitchen. But if she was in her bedroom, like it was, it was bad. So it'd be like, oh, my sister being brilliant in being the older sister was always gone. She had boyfriends. She had boyfriends at 12. Um, <laughs> babysitting at 12. She was just always gone as much as she could. And she got into drugs and super into the partying scene. She just didn't want to be there. And mm -hmm. she used to run away all the time. And like, I get it. Um, I, I don't know if this is something that I was told to do or if I just chose it. But I, for whatever reason, decided I was the person to try to keep my mom alive. Heather would stay up on the nights her mother seemed more dangerous and sit outside her mom's bedroom door. I remember one time she came out, she was snarly, and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm just here. I'm just here to take care of you. And she looked at me and like, people who know mental illness know this look there's a very particular look in the eyes and it's unbelievably scary and she said do you really think you sitting outside my bedroom is going to stop me and I just started sobbing I hadn't slept in two days and I thought like damn it okay um but I loved her loved her I was the person who had her hospitalized but for any of you who might know someone who's a parent who's schizophrenic, it's very hard for them to receive help. And so she didn't. She had been severely, severely, severely beaten as a child. So I'm actually kind of amazed she kept it together as much as she did. It didn't quite click for Heather that her mom was crazy till she was about eight. Her mom always slipped into this persona they called Judy. Judy always seemed to be around, but never in front of people. When Judy came out in public for the first time at the laundromat, Heather realized this was not normal. Judy was this person that mom, in my mind, pretended to be when she was tired of being mom. So she would just say, I'm Judy. Your mom's you know, gone for a little while. I'm going to take care of you and she'll come back. And I used to always say, like, you know, nah, I want mom, stop it. I don't like this game. <laughs> and then she would come back and we would kind of pretend like nothing had happened. She never owned she had a mental illness. And, you know, I was a kid, so I didn't really know what to do with that. And she was also a severe alcoholic to try to self-medicate. So, hmm. like, she's drinking a lot, so that makes a problem. But, um, when we went to the laundromat, it was the first time that she stayed Judy. And so when the laundromat owner came up to her, I wrote a piece on this, which has been published. It's really, it's beautiful. But he came up to her and he said, hello, Virginia. And she said, I'm not Virginia. I'm, I'm Judy. And he just looked at her and like he shook his head and walked away. And I remember thinking, Oh, he knows, like he, he knows, like, this isn't what like people do. People don't play this game. And so at the end of us washing all our clothes and folding them up, he came up to me and he said, are you okay? 
And I remember looking into his eyes and I said, I don't know. Hmm. And I remember like squeezing the warm laundry to my chest and walking out to that car thinking like, I, I don't even know what this is. Like, I didn't realize this was quite as crazy it was until he told me it was. And that was it. He didn't do anything, but I don't really know what a, like a laundromat person would do. And that's when I realized, okay, so I'm living a really different life than most people, which has impacted me hugely because we all do. Yes, yes. And we all have our own stories. And my mom is a huge part of mine. So what I realized is she didn't live completely in this reality. And she and I didn't live in the same reality. And I found the ability to not dishonor hers, mm. to respect it, to believe it for her and not for me. And so we had a, a really powerful relationship because I would be the bridge. When my dad was saying, you know, stop it, Jenny, this is crazy. Like the helicopters aren't coming to get you. I just knew it didn't work because for her, they were. And so I would throw a blanket over her head and tell her that they weren't going to find her. And then she could stay in this reality a little bit more. Sadly, not long after that time Heather was sitting outside her mom's bedroom, Virginia, Heather's mom, took her own life. When she killed herself, I knew the moment she did it. I was with a friend at school, and I remember saying for the first time in my life, I think my mom's going to kill herself. And it was at the moment that she did. Her dad was, gosh, I think 85 years old. And it was left for me. I was kind of the person who did everything. I put mom in the hospital. I tried to keep mom alive. I called her dad and told him, but I didn't, I didn't have the heart to tell him that his only child had killed herself. And so I told him her heart gave out. Mm. Which is true. It did. And that was, that was all he needed to know. And there's a place of when you've gone through really deep pain and loss, like you beautiful people who are listening, where it's important that you give yourself and the one who has passed over that if you feel so inclined, that place of honor. There's a lot of people that want to know what happened and how it happened. And they, they mean well, but it can be really violating as I'm sure a lot of you have gone through. And it's part of our voyeuristic humanness, but in my opinion, it rarely serves the person who's hurting. So for mm. any of you who have been, in my opinion, wronged in that way, just know from my heart, I, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. It's up to you to share the parts of your story that you choose to. I'm so grateful Heather spoke to this. You all know I ask the bold questions on this show. And honestly, that was going to be the one that came out of my mouth next. But because she educated me in that moment, I left her mom's details to be honored. It's a good reminder that we don't always need to know or ask every detail of someone's pain. Can we love them through it without knowing every intricate detail? And if you are someone who has lost a loved one and people ask the details, 
I pray you have the courage to keep sacred the things you want to. Some find peace and healing in sharing, while others find it in honoring a sacred, private moment. And both are absolutely okay. May we have the courage to know our healing needs and meet them. I did, however, want to understand the mental illness a little bit better. The way to make mental health less taboo is to simply talk about these things. With paranoid schizophrenia, which is a different one than simple or habrivic, when, when you see the people on the street corners who are in the bright colored garish makeup, that's a specific type. That wasn't my mom. And the simple um, just have a really hard time being in this reality. The catatonic don't move. My mom's was paranoid. So the paranoid feels that the world or maybe it might be police or the government is out to get them. A lot of times they'll be very fearful of watching TV. They're afraid that somehow they're viewed as a threat. And so the government is looking out to find something from them. They're, they're often the ones in the mental institutions that believe that they're Jesus or God or Mother Mary of Joan of Arc. Um, and it's, a, in my opinion, it's a challenge of the person's psyche, mentally and spiritually, to be able to embrace who they are and how they are. There's a lot of research about why it happens. And I don't think we completely know, but a big piece is in childhood, there were split messages. And if I look at my mom's, it totally happened. She would go and sit on her daddy's lap when she was three. And her mom would say to her, don't do that. You're a big girl. Get off your father's lap. Mm. So she would jump down and then her mom would go curl up in her father's lap. And um, to hide the abuse, my grandmother was afraid that the police would find out. And so she would say things like, you're a bad girl, so the police are going to come and get you. Oh, and gosh. so she stayed away from talking to people. So there was a split. She'd say things like, if you loved me, you wouldn't do that. And my mom's head, she's thinking, okay, I, I, I do love you, but I, I, I did do that. And so it creates this challenge in living in this world because you start to question your intentions and you start to question your motives. And I think that peaks that fear, which then moves to the other person. So there's times where it's just odd. And then there's times where the person's in a full-on psychosis. And when it's odd, they just respond to things strangely, or they'll get messages and things. And you'll think like, what? Like, they'll, they'll be like, did you see what she did? She did that because, and you're like, I don't, well, I don't think so. I think she just did it because she wanted to do it. But they start to find messages. And if if you live with someone who's a paranoid schizophrenic, you start to find ways to stitch their stories to kind of understand, oh, wow. Okay, so she went from there and, oh my gosh, she grabbed that. It's, it's mm. pretty fascinating. So my heart, my mom was huge. And as I said, I, I adored her. I have so many great memories with her. But I felt drawn to try to help people live in this reality and deal with whatever hardship life like thrust upon them. And so my desire in counseling 
really started there. How old were you when she took her life? 16. Wow. Yeah. And how would you say that that has affected? Huh, everything. It yeah. has affected everything. So she, she killed herself. My dad, bless him. He's long since gone, but, but bless him. He didn't know what the hell to do. So that night he took us out to dinner and Christy and I are like, we don't want to go. And he's buying a steak, which we never had. And like, we're watching him eat and we're just like in disbelief. And that night he said, you don't have to go to school for a while. And I, I remember saying, of course I'm going to school. Like school is my haven. Mm-hmm. School was where I got to pretend I was just like everybody else. And I wasn't, and I had tried to get help. I, I would feign injuries and, and feign problems to go to the doctor. And then I'd slide them a note, but my mom would always be in the room. She'd always grab the note. And there was one time where the doctor read it. And I said, my mom is not well, she needs help. And the doctor just not knowing said, are you okay, Mrs. Malkerloin? She said, I'm fine. He goes, good. Ah, doctors. That was how things were back then. Yes, Heather adored her mother, but I did wonder if there was ever abuse in her home. She had abused my sister and I when we were young. I think I was, I think I was four and my sister was six and we wanted to make mommy cookies. And all we knew is it was flour and sugar and water. So we went into the kitchen and if you're a little kid and you get flour everywhere, (laughs) like it was so fun. She walked in the door and like was ballistic. And she came after my sister. I remember her breaking a candle over her head and dragging her by her hair down the hallway. Mm -hmm. And then she came at me with um, a metal mop and she was swinging it and she kept hitting me and I kept cowering. And then she did this one big one. It was right by my head and I ducked. It made this massive gouge into the cupboard. I ran to my room. My sister and I were not close. Like we, we were the outlet of anger that was within our family that nobody would express. And so we were not close. But that night we took everything we couldn't barricade at the door and hid. Um, and would not let my mom in. And she was sobbing outside the door and there was no way in hell we were letting her in. And in the morning, this is where you see my mom's heart. She had taped tape around the gouge and she sat me down and she said, I will never do that again. And when she would get really mad, she would run to the cupboard and look at that gouge and hold her head there and sob. And I remember when she was mad being scared, but also unbelievably touched. When we were 10, we redid the kitchen and the the carpenter guy came and she said, fix everything, but do not move that tape and do not fix that cupboard. Like the guy's like, woman, you're crazy. I'm going to make it look (laughs) awesome. She like yelled at him. She goes, do not move that tape. Do not fix that cupboard. Hmm. That's how she stayed. And so she never, ever beat us again. We were spanked 
for a couple more years, but we were never beaten again, ever. Wow. Which after what she went through, because she was black and blue as a kid, um, it's amazing she she learned how to deal with her anger as well as she did. So I just have a huge heart for people going through their their situations. Heather was really smart and applied herself in school. So when she graduated, she got into UCLA, but she didn't want to go. She wanted to do theater. Ah, a woman after my own heart. But her dad was not about that at all. So I said, well, I'll go to UCLA if I can do theater, because theater was this place where I got to not be Heather. And I loved it. And I was very good at it. And that was my escape. And my dad would not have it. And he said, no, you need to be in business. You're, you know, you're smart, you're, you're skilled, you're gifted. And I said, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I want to be in theater. And so he said, if you don't go to UCLA and study business, I'm not paying. And I remember thinking like, what the hell, man? I just lost my mom. Now you're not going to pay for college. And I, I just looked at him and I said, okay. And so I went to New York. Uh, got myself in college, got myself massively in student loan debt ah. <laughs> and was disowned. And then after a year's time, I just didn't want to live in the world as a solo person. And so I reached out to him and said, like, you know, we got to figure a way to to do this. And so we did to a certain extent, to a certain extent. I mean, he just he, he didn't quite know how to do it. But to a certain extent, life continued on. Heather pursued theater, did some work in a group home, and was introduced to therapy. She began to deal with all that life had offered her so far. Heather had been abused, molested, lost her mother to suicide. She was disowned. You know, the normal traumas were all dealt. That sentence itself sounds like it could be a whole separate episode. You see how no one has a one-dimensional story? There's so much we could unpack there. But for the sake of this episode, we move forward. At that time, I was getting my master's and I met my husband and we got married. Oh, wait, wait. On my podcast, okay. you don't just get to say I met my husband because I love a good love story. So how did okay, you meet? So it's a beautiful story. <laughs> okay. So when I was, I never made it in theater. I'm six foot one and no one told me, nor did I think you don't have a good career at six foot one. Like you have to be gymnasia, Bridget Nielsen. And so the agents wanted me to do that, which, you know, I'm, I'm a strong, big woman. I mean, I could have done it, like look sexy and bustiers. And like, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be like the nice girl next door, but the nice girl <laughs> next door isn't six foot one. So I thought, well, like, how, how do I break into theater? And I thought, well, maybe I'll try modeling. And so I did. And I it wasn't huge by any means, but, but I worked a lot and, um, I thought that would open the door for theater. It didn't, but it did open the door for my husband because some magazine called single connections found my headshot, found something I did, reached out to my agent and said, you know, we'd like to contact this model you have. And so they said, please give her our phone number. And I thought, huh, I'm single. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll call. I'll see. And five bazillion years ago, there was something called 900 numbers. And that was where people would pay to talk to you. They had just come out. 
So this company was making a ton of money doing this. And so they found, in their opinion, attractive females to set up with the 900 number. But I had a PO box because of modeling. I thought, well, I can just have the letters go to the PO box. And yeah, like I can listen to these voice messages and respond. The first day there was like 115 voice messages. And I'm like, no way. Like, oh I'm my gosh, I'm not doing this. I called the company and I'm like, I'm sorry, take me out. Like, I, I don't have time for this. And a lot of them were gross phone calls. And they said, don't, don't worry about it. We're going to keep you on uh -huh. and just respond to whatever letters you want. And so I had, I think I got like 250 letters. Most of them were like, not most of them were weird, but there were some weird ones. Like, I want you to stand on my stomach and bore your heels into my stomach. I'm like, what? <laughs> I responded to 10, which sounded like really like beautiful men, really lovely, beautiful men. One was my husband and he hadn't included a photo. It was the only one that I responded to that didn't have a photo, but it's, it's a beautiful letter. I still have it. And I wrote back and he wrote back and I wrote back and we did that for about a month. Oh. Then he eventually said, you know, could we, could we talk on the phone? I'm like, sure. So we spoke over the phone, I think twice. And it just, it was just right. So he asked me if he could take me out. I'm like, of course, he take me to a nice restaurant um, near where I lived. And I said to him before we hung up, I said, well, you, you know what I look like, but I have no idea what you look like. How am I going to find you? And he said, I'm five foot three. I weigh 315 pounds. I have red hair, which is mostly balding. And I went, <laughs> and I said, well, you'll, you'll be easy to pick out then. So I'll, I'll see you tomorrow night. And he said, you're still going to go out with me. Now in my head, I'm thinking like, this isn't going to work, but he was a great guy. So we'll be friends. And I said, yeah. And then he said, okay, I actually have brown hair and blue eyes. He said he was six feet, but he was actually five, like five, 11, five, 10. And we had, we had a lovely date. So he, he was just testing you to see if yeah. he'd still Oh, <laughs> he said he knew in that moment. He knew in that moment. And what was funny is we have this delicious dinner. We're getting along great. And then he hands me a card and it's, it's a hand with a rose. And it says, there's only one thing that could wilt this beauty. And that's your smile. And then the waiter comes out with a hot fudge sundae and and I'm like looking at him, I'm like, I don't understand. Wilt. And he said, Oh, they were supposed to bring a red rose. <laughs> and I said to him, Oh, I'm gonna like the hot fudge sundae so much more. <laughs> and we just had a great night. We had a great night. I knew on the third date. I knew on the third date. It was just right. My husband was a beautiful man and he had a beautiful heart. Um did you have kids? Yeah, we have two kids. Well, I was pregnant three times. So we had Sienna and she's my first and she's glorious. She's glorious. She's 25. We are madly in love with each other. We have an incredible relationship. It's beautiful. And then I had a miscarriage in between, but I got pregnant with Sienna the very first time we tried and I knew. So the next morning I, when I woke up, I said to Ted, we're pregnant.
And he said, how do you know? I'm like, I feel it. He's like, come on, Heather, you can't. And I'm like, I, I am pregnant. I could feel my uterine wall stretching like the next day. And then went to the bathroom. Going to be a little bit here. That's fine. My areolas had gotten darker, like considerably. And I'm like, does this? I'm like, look at my boobs. And he's like, does that mean you're pregnant? I'm like, yes. So with the one that we lost, Pumpkin, it was also first time. So getting pregnant was really easy for me. And when we knew we wanted a second, I had told Ted, you know, you know how you try to time it. Well, let's have them about two and a half to three years apart. Like that would be good. And he said, well, you know, we were lucky to get pregnant the first time with Sienna. So we should start early because it can take up to a year, blah, 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 blah. And I said, no, I think we should wait till like two and a half months, you know, a two and a half, three, like for that time frame. He goes, let's just try. So when we got pregnant, I wasn't as thrilled as I wanted to be because mm -hmm. I thought, wow, like the baby's going to come really close really, really close. And Santa's not going to have as much time as a child. So then when I lost it, I a hundred percent had some guilt there. Like, did I lose this because I didn't want it? And so then I had this huge experience of what it feels like. And that concern of maybe I can never get pregnant again. Maybe I'm going to have a ton of miscarriages. It, it broke the, the belief that I had oddly after Sienna that like, it's easy for me to get pregnant. So then when we got pregnant with Mac, it took two times, but when we got pregnant with Mac, I was in a really different place and just grateful, beyond grateful, beyond grateful. So had that little, little, had that little heart loss in the middle. And then, yeah, we did the whole family thing. So I worked and, and Ted worked and we had beautiful children and my, my call in life was to bring awe and wonder and love and joy to others. And I I had to be a mother. I told Ted, I have to be a mother more than I need to be a wife. So if I can't have children, you have to know we're adopting a hundred percent. There's 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 no no possibility I'm not gonna be a mom. Do you think any of that came from being with with your mom and taking care of your mom and wanting to offer kids a more quote, unquote, normal life. hundred percent. Yeah. It also gave me a deep desire to feel what it meant to be a mom. And I knew I would be a mom very differently than my mom was to me. When I worked in the group home, it was for teenage girls, teenage high school girls. Because I didn't have, a, I mean, I lived teenage years, but I, I didn't have teenage years. Yeah. And so I wanted to give back to those who didn't have. So for my kids, I just wanted to give them a magical childhood. And she did. Heather homeschooled her kids, and it wasn't your regular old homeschooling. Heather was magical. They call me the fairy, and I am. Like we I had, love you. <laughs> we had so much fun. I literally had moms asking me if I would homeschool their children because what I was doing was so incredible. And like, I, I felt a little bad, but I'm like, I, I don't want to homeschool your, your children. I just want to play with mine. <laughs> it was incredible because to me, life was incredible. And so we explored everything, everything. 
We did every science project that I could find. We just did everything. We explored everything. We went everywhere. We hiked and we did nature and we went to museums and we did art and we did music and we did sports and we did literature and we drew and we cooked. And I, I did this program. It was called Countries and Cultures. It was by a company called Beautiful Feet. And you would study a country for a month. And they would have, you know, little activities. And so I took the book, which was great. I love the program. And I blew it out of the water. So I would research what videos were from that country, what children books were from that country, what were books that children had written from that country. We would study the religion, the art, the history, the commerce. We would study everything we could, the dance, the language, all of that. We'd learn a little bit of the language. We'd learn a song or two about, you know, that the children sang. I'd try to take them to a religious ceremony in that country's native tongue. All our art projects for that month were based upon that country. We cooked for that country. And then Ted would come home and we'd have a night of Romania or whatever. The best one, the best one was South America. And we did the Yamamamo tribe. And we had never been seen by white man or photographed, but we welcomed him into our village. And I made this tape with the kids of like lemurs in the background and leopards and bird sounds. And I, we hung um, vines all from the living room ceiling. And I got like hanging monkeys up and I got big banana leaves. And we, we ate on the floor with this tape going in the background. We had... Yamo Mamo page all over us. And whenever he would talk to us, we would talk in Yamo Mamo. We looked in <laughs> English. And bless his heart, he just followed along. We, we got up, we started doing tribal dancing. Oh, it was hysterical. And he was borderline flipping out because he's like, my wife is insane, which is partially true. Like I am for sure fairy. And it was amazing. And the kids, like, they'll never forget it. So they have both said to me, is there Anyway, you can help me homeschool my kids. Like if you can afford to live and do that a hundred percent, I loved it. So bringing my mom's magic, bringing wonder, like trees were alive for her. Her coat was a polar bear. And so we looked for fairies in the yard all the time. So that aspect I brought, but with recognizing it was magic and pretend and not that I think my coat is indeed a polar bear, mm. but my mom brought a deep, deep connection with nature. The beach was unbelievably important to her. I think it's a place where her soul rested. And so my kids grew up in nature just all the time. We were just constantly in nature. I live in a place that's Cementville. And I, I told Ted, like, I, I can live here because financially we need to, but our gas price is going to be high. <laughs> get them out to, to mountains and rivers and deserts and lakes as much as I possibly could. Heather was homeschooling her kids, madly in love with her husband. And while all of this sounds wonderful and perfect, there were some behind the scenes struggles. Ted, Heather's husband, struggled with depression. Do you remember that recession in 2008? Well, Ted had a job in the mortgage industry. And after 2008, despite his best efforts, he failed to get rehired. And it, it broke him. It broke him. 
So he didn't work for a couple of years and couldn't get a job. So then he went back to get his master's thinking he would teach. And I thought, okay, we'll just like, we'll figure out a way for me to work my butt off. We'll stop homeschooling because I have to work all the time. Fortunately, I could make a good amount. So Heather had to go back to work as a psychotherapist and they just did what they had to do to make it work. So he got his master's, so he wasn't working during those two years. And then he thought he'd be hired. You would think a man who has his master's, who's 48 years old in a great school, would be hired. And no! And so he took these little weird, I shouldn't say that. He took he took jobs that, that you wouldn't think you would need to take, like teaching science for a charter school a couple hours a week or he did literature for um a catholic school for a couple hours a week so he's doing all this little bizarre piecework but no job job and he loved teaching and he loved coaching and he was amazing at both but it takes a lot of years to be picked up and he Mm -hmm. was 48 which is a long time to step into the teaching profession. If he'd been in his 20s, it wouldn't have been a big deal. But he was 48 and he didn't work for five years, which just meant like I had to kick butt, which I did. And he still was depressed because he knew he wasn't providing. And my kids had a hard time with it too. I clearly had a hard time with it. Can we talk about this for a minute? I am a mother myself. And sometimes... I get so wrapped up in this weight that women can bear, but we are not alone in having an unbearable weight and pressure on us. The father has a different pressure. And no, we cannot quantify difficulty. And we cannot and should not compare who has it harder, I say with finger quotes. But can we just acknowledge the two very different societal pressures? So not to take away from the mother, but the pressure of the father to provide and protect his family I don't know if I will ever fully understand that. Not to mention that mental health is still a very taboo topic among men. I can't imagine the failure one would feel when try after try, he's unable to be the breadwinner of the family. Too much of a man's worth gets so wrapped up in their job or career. How can we combat these societal pressures? Hmm, food for thought. Okay, back to the story. So his depression lingered. And his solace was food. So he gained, I don't know, close to 100 pounds. And he wouldn't go to the doctor. I kept pressing him to go to the doctor. His dad had died at 51 of a heart attack. We had had a scare two years before where something was really wrong. And he finally went to the doctor and he was internally bleeding. They thought it was leukemia. Thank God it wasn't. He had bleeding polyps. So they went ahead and did surgery and took care of it. It was, it was all okay. But the doctor said to Ted, do you want to be here when your daughter graduates high school? I said, of course. And he said, then you and I need to take care of this situation. And Ted never went back. He wouldn't go back. Because Ted never went back to the doctor, there's no specific heart diagnosis. So I believed he had high blood pressure, but he wouldn't go to the doctor. What I found after he died in a drawer, and I, I wanted to kill him, but he was already dead, so I couldn't, 
is he had been going to get his blood pressure checked for like the last three weeks. And it was through the roof. Like I'm surprised there wasn't a lock that came down a 911 called. It was so high. So he'd been checking it, but not doing anything. Um, he had a friend who's had high blood pressure and his friend had given him a couple of his medications. I hope I don't get anybody in trouble for this. And Ted took them. That probably kept him alive a little bit longer, but he didn't go to the doctor. So the night before he had a headache and he mentioned his elbow hurt, but he was the assistant baseball coach. And, you know, you use your arm a lot. So neither of us, or at least I didn't make anything of it. In the morning, he seemed fine. And I had to take my son to an eye appointment. And so he was going to go meet the parents for school because school was just about to start. It was a Saturday morning. I ran out of the door with Mac and he gave me a quick little kiss. Fortunately, I said to him, is that it? And he said, you want more? I'm like, yeah, I want more. So we had this beautiful, passionate kiss. I ran out the door come back an hour later and his truck's still on the driveway. And my son said, why is dad here? I said, I don't know. So we both went into the house. I went to the garage thinking he might be in the garage, pulling something together. Mac went to my bedroom mm. and he comes out of the bedroom and he goes, ah, and I said, what? He said, Dad's fallen asleep on your bed naked. And I went, what? And I went into the room and he was dead. And it was obvious. Like it had been a little while. Mm. So I did something that like, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. Cause I have, I have a high bed, I have a sleigh bed. So it's high. And I knew he was dead but I didn't have the heart. I just didn't have the heart to push him. And he was too heavy for me to like lift on my own. And I, I knew he was dead, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to hurt him. That's like, makes no sense. So I needed Mac to take an arm with me and like lower him. Cause I knew I needed to do compressions. So call him back in. I said, your dad's had a heart attack. Call 911. And then I just started to do compressions. And I, I don't know if I was pushing too hard, but his eyes were open. I didn't even think to close them. And I saw his eyes, it was so eerie, like Ugh. flush with blood. And I just kept on and I just kept on. I don't know how long it took for the firemen to come, but they walk in and I remember them saying, you can stop. Mm. And so I did. And then I'm looking at them like, come on now. And they said, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, you're, you're not going to do anything. And he said, there's nothing to do. And I said, you're not going to defib him? And the poor guy, he said, we will if you want us to. And I said, but it won't, it won't do anything. And he said, he's gone. I think I screamed. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. But I remember calling out to God and I said, since you have taken my husband in this horrific way, like you've got to help me with these kids. And at some point you've got to help 
this horrible thing bless people and so I told my kids like I don't I don't know how we're gonna do this but we're gonna do this and we gotta we gotta use this to help people which in their own ways they they all have clearly I have and how old were they 14 and 17 um and then we went through what you go through which is the hell of having lost someone suddenly where you're not prepared in any way and like trying to help the kids do life um my dad was my dad so you know he wasn't helpful um ted's mom was she was she was really helpful but i remember saying to my kids I don't know why God took your dad. Like, I have no idea. I don't think I'll ever know, but I do know this. Whoever we are to be now, we couldn't be that person if he was here. And I don't know what that means, but we are to be different. And my son, bless his sweet little 14-year-old heart, said, wouldn't it be better if we just fell apart? Wouldn't it be better if we just fell apart. This is my favorite saying from the entire episode. Wouldn't it be better if we just fell apart? Wouldn't it? I think it would. The worst thing I did when I thought I lost my son was beat myself up for falling apart. Whatever you're going through, I really wholeheartedly think it would be better if you just let yourself fall apart. I read a quote on Facebook the other day that said, he cried. He knew Lazarus was dead before he got the news, but still, he cried. He knew Lazarus would be alive again in moments, but still, he cried. He knew death here is not forever. He knew eternity and the kingdom better than anyone else could, yet he wept. Because this world is full of pain and regret and loss and depression and devastation, he wept because knowing the end of the story doesn't mean you can't cry at the sad parts. Jesus wept. Jesus wept used to be my favorite scripture because it was the shortest and the easiest to memorize. Now I get it. It didn't need anything more. It's okay just to weep and let it be. When did falling apart become quitting or giving up? It never did. So for heaven's sakes, fall apart, please. And if you're worried that falling apart is ugly and messy, and you don't want to do it alone, you can join our community of people who are willing to fall apart. Quit falling apart all by yourself. Come fall apart together with all of us in our Beyond the Picket Fence community Facebook group. Join the community and stop falling apart alone because you're not the only one, and it's okay to not keep it all together all the time. And this mother, Heather, responded perfectly to her son. Wouldn't it be better if we just fell apart, he asked. And I said, oh, we're going to but we're going to be able at some point to pick ourselves up. And he said, wouldn't it just be better if this ruined us? And I said, no, that would show that your daddy and I didn't show you how to live. Uh, I don't know how we're going to do this. And any of you who have gone through it, you don't know. Like you make it up as you go along. So wouldn't it be better if we just fell apart? Yes, 
But would it be better if it ruins us? No, my friends, we must remember, or we learn, how to live. It's been eight years now. Um, of course, I miss him every single day. I miss the fact that my kids didn't get a dad for as long as like I would have liked them to have. I told my kids really quickly that I would never date and I would never remarry. And my daughter said, well, why? And I said, because he's supposed to be the grandpa. And my beautiful daughter said, but what if I want to, what if I want a physical one? And then I started sobbing. I'm like, but I don't know if I can find another guy. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I want you to love again. Fortunately, I'm eight years out. Thank God I'm eight years out because that was the hardest year. Like my the year my mom killed herself was an unbelievably hard year. And then that was my second. That was my second hardest year for sure. And and, and the the biggest places, like I didn't I didn't have friends who were widows and we mm-hmm. weren't prepared. So financially, I had to go back to work three days after he died. And I remember Gosh. telling all of my clients, I don't know if I'm going to be any good. I don't know if I can even be a therapist. So this is the way we're going to do it. I'm going to give you a session. And if I'm worth it, pay me. And if I'm not, I'll close up shop for a while. I've been blessed with the most beautiful clients in the whole wide world. Like they adore me. I adore them. We work so well together it actually in in a lot of ways was good because it gave me some time to see that I could still love others, even though we were in like unbelievable pain. Mm. So none of them quit, but I had a crazy thing happen, which is you ever, we, everyone who's lost someone has crazy stories, but I remember texting my client that I had in two days saying, my husband has suddenly died. I'm so sorry, but I need to cancel our session. I'm not quite certain when I'll be back in the office, but I know I'm going to need at least a week. This is going to be my second session with them. And that, you know, they texted back, oh, I am so sorry. Okay, let us know when you're available. And then on, on Monday, they texted me, it was two days after Ted had died. And they said, are you all better now? And I so wanted to be snarky and to text back and say, yeah, totally. It's been two days. I'm all good. Like what time works for you? But I remember thinking, Heather, don't you dare do it. Like they're just wrapped up in their own stuff. I remember telling my kids, you've got three weeks. And they said, what do you mean? I said, you got three weeks. For three weeks, people are going to love on you. We're going to have a thousand casseroles at our door everyone's going to be tender and take it all in, take every hug, take every casserole. If you want it, of course, you're not going to eat it. We're going to throw it out. (laughs) People, whatever. We found four cakes in the stove when I finally decided to cook a month after Ted had died, all moldy. Like, you know, you just, you can't eat, you know how it is. Um, But I remember telling them, take it, like milk these three weeks. And my kids said, well, why does it only last three weeks? I said, it lasts three weeks. Like, how do you know? I'm like, Guys, and I remember saying to my kids on the third week going back to school, be ready and don't be angry with them. They're simply going to go back to life. And both of my kids are like, yeah, 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 yeah. A couple of days later, my daughter came back so pissed off. She's like, they're talking about jeans. 
home. And I'm like, honey, it's been three weeks. And so for me, the hardest part in all of this, and anyone who's a mom knows, I could not take away my kid's pain. Mm. And I owned it. And I told them like, I can't. Like, I have to let you do what you have to do. And I can love you through it, but I'm not going to lessen any of your pain. I'm just going to give you love. And it was, oh, it was so humbling to know, like, they had to go through their own personal hell. And I couldn't do anything to change that. Did the situation of losing your mom at 16, almost in a way, like this irony, like, you kind of yeah. understood what they were going through because you went through similar. Someone said to me right after Ted had died, you know how people just say things in love and they mean so much good. Yes, like, what and it's the, the perfectly wrong thing. <laughs> totally. totally. And they said, well, you're the, you're the perfect one for this to happen to. And I said, what does that mean? And they said, well, you lost your mom at 16 and you're a therapist. And I remember looking at them and I said, I get that I'm going to know how to deal with this, but why the hell do my children have to go through this? And I had a, I had a really good friend who had never been through like super hard hardships. And I was clearly having a very hard time the first couple of weeks. And I had one of my many very dark days and I reached out to her and she was trying so hard. And she said, Heather, you have to look for the blessing. And I said, I think I'm going to hurt you right now. And I don't think I've ever hurt you. Don't you dare ever say that to someone who's just lost someone. Like, there is no blessing. My husband's dead. Like, my kids will never have a father. Yeah, he wasn't like eaten alive by piranhas. I'm super grateful for that. Like that would be awful. And my kids didn't die with it. Like I knew it could be worse. It could have been a ton worse. But what happened wasn't blessed. And I had an awareness that I think you don't come to unless you live something like this. And I, this is my truth. It's only my truth. It might not be anybody else's. So I need to put that massive disclaimer out. I didn't feel that God was going to turn this into a blessing. The kids and I were going to allow ourselves to respond to this horrible thing in a way to be the blessing. Yes. I just heard a thing that I can't remember who told me, but it's some people say there's a reason for everything, but I think it's more like with God, there's reason in everything. If that makes sense. It carries you through it all. But, and I can't say that my life hasn't like got, it's different. Like there's a whole bunch that it's not still, but it's, it's different. And there's some areas that are like absolutely lovely and beautiful and incredible, but that only happened because the kids and I allowed that to happen. Like you're not blessed unless you choose to be blessed. Otherwise you're not. You think you're robbed, cheated. The place of losing my mom that was paramount in helping my kids. And this part did help them. 
is that I had always told them, you don't know how long anyone's here. And so it's really important to let each day be full of whatever it is that you can of love and joy and beauty. So they did, of course, feel that they had been wronged and cheated because you all do to a certain extent. But I really spoke into like death is natural. We just all think like our partner, our father is going to die at 90 in his sleep. But a lot of people don't even make it to the physical world alive or they die in the hospital or at one month or two months or three months or four months. I lost a very good friend at 16 to rape. And so I knew that life didn't necessarily mean, and did I, did I want more? Yes, but I didn't feel God had cheated me. I just, just felt like I totally hated God's choice. Yes, I could scream that. And so could Heather. And she did. She didn't mind her kids seeing her cry, but she did try to hide the insane wailing grief coming out of her. So she let that happen between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. I'd go and sit on the toilet and sob. And I had two really good friends who asked me a couple of weeks after Ted had died how I was doing. And I'm like, three to six in the morning is hell. It's hell. And they said, you know, why aren't you calling? And I told them both, I love you so much. I know I could. I know I could. I know you want me to. And that blesses my heart deeply. And, and I could. And you would love on me. And I would feel better. And then I would hang up the phone. And I'm alone. So I just have to do this. And I hate it. But this is what my life is. And I got to figure out how the hell to do it. Maybe two weeks later, sitting on the toilet as I always did. <laughs> 4.15 in the morning, and all of a sudden, I knew someone was praying. I'd never known in the moment someone was praying for me before that I'm aware of, but I knew it, or at least I didn't know it in the sense that, like, energetically, I felt it, like, boom. Yeah. I'm in the midst of, like, I go, someone's praying for me. I look I look at my, my, my clock, and I'm like, it's 4.15, someone's praying for me. And it, it like, I can't, don't know how much, but a whole bunch of the grief, like, went, whoo, like, it's like not quite there. And I remember going on Facebook and saying, whoever was praying for me at 4.15 in the morning, I 100% felt it. I 100% received it. And I cannot thank you enough for the relief that I felt. Wow. One of my dear friends texted back and she said, it was me. And I told her, I absolutely felt it. And I absolutely needed it. And I took it in. I can't say I didn't wail cry the next day. I probably did. But something shifted a little bit. Like I knew, I knew there were people in the world rallying for us. And you know when the people bring you the casseroles, they are. And you know when the people send you the cards, they are. And you know when they come up and hug you at the funeral, they are. But when someone 
loves you in a moment simply because they want to love you and not in those ways that most people do. There was a woman up my street who I didn't know and she didn't speak English. I live in a, in a largely Vietnamese neighborhood and she came that night with a bouquet of flowers. She couldn't speak English. She just kept bowing. And mm. I thought, how does she know? And I thought, well, come on, Heather. Like there, like it was, it was a crime zone. And of course there were fire engines everywhere as there are in a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And this blessed woman went to the store for people she didn't even know. And I remember hugging her. And Vietnamese women are really tiny. So I hugged her like, <laughs> boobs, like teeny tiny down. And she's this little woman. And I'm like this big bear coming down. <laughs> and I remember just falling apart, shaking. And she was kind of holding me up. Mm. But those are those moments where I just feel like there's angels on this earth trying to help us through. And... I've gone through a lot in my life. I am unbelievably blessed. And I treasure the people who are important to me. Um, The story of the heart pain doesn't end. My daughter fell in love with the first person that she's been in love with. And um, I raised my kids Christian and she had saved herself and she wanted to marry this guy and she wanted to live with him and she wanted to have sex, which is not something that the fundamental Christian society approves of. And my daughter was disowned, not by her grandma, but by her aunt and her uncle, which are my late husband's siblings mm. because she wouldn't follow the path and and you know she was doing a lot of things smoking pot and she got into psychedelics she's an artist and so there was a lot that was going on eating disorder like there's a lot of there's a lot of problems sometimes after you lose someone and we don't always handle it well and even with that both of my kid both of my kids struggled but they handled it as best they could and I've always told everybody, like, I'm a mama bear. You tell me, put me down for the way I raise my kids. And that's going to be the place I'm going to have a hard time with you. Anything else I'm pretty okay with, but (laughs) we got a lot of kickback. Um, And I thought, wow. So we lose our family too. Because of the way we're dealing with our grief. And choices that we're making beyond our grief. Okay. told my daughter this is where we learn how to love even more this is where we learn how to love ourselves even more this is where we learn how to love others even more this is where we really learn to love beyond because I bet there's listeners where because of how they've handled their grief or because of what has happened in response to the grief like some people plummet They just do. It's just hard. And there's pivotal times in our lives where like you need a dad or, you know, you you need 
you need life to be different than it is. And we don't, we don't get that choice. And so we don't all handle grief swimmingly. I've always found it interesting that when people pass away, we tend to remember and honor and talk about all of their greatest features and heroic moments, rightfully so. We know, though, as humans, no one is perfect, and we all have our quirks. Ted was a hoarder. His mother told Heather right after he passed not to touch anything for a year. And then after that year, she would come help Heather go through every single thing. And it was so hard for me to say this to her, but I said, Mom, I love you so much. And I know that's how you need me to grieve, Ted. And that's how you want your son honored. And I can't do it. I can't do it. I've lived with a hoarder for 20 years. The kids and I hate the hoarding. We're going to go through the house really fast. And we're going to make the house beautiful and have photos of Ted up and baseballs of Ted out where we can see them not amidst all this clutter and trash so that we can see the beauty of Ted and not keep being reminded of where to us it wasn't beautiful. So I mm -hmm. said, I will, I will rent a shed for you. I'll put every single piece of paper in it and I'll pay for it. And you go through it when you want to, but I will not go through it a second time. And so that was a, a really big awareness for me. And it continues to be for working with clients in grief and loss. And it's absolutely one of my specialties is honoring the way that you need to grieve and be really allowing of yourself for what that is. Because that path is so important for you to ground into your truth as much as possible. And everyone, you know, everyone tells you what to do and how to do it and how you should. And you know, you know, they're wrong because they're telling you what they think you should do if they were you and they're not. They never ask you, what do you need? And you don't know. Anyway. Yeah, that's the hardest thing is like, what do you need? And it's like to you to not ask me that question. <laughs> not here. Like, I just remember like to not be here. Like, I just need to not be here. And they're like, uh, like, yep. I had one friend. She's my my, one of my dearest, dearest friends, Susie. She's been friends for 46 years. She lives two hours away for four weeks. She just came. Wednesdays, she came. She'd drive up for two hours, be at my house for three hours and drive down for two hours. And when she told me she was doing it, I'm like, well, what are we going to be doing? And she said, I don't know. So she'd come into my house. I love this woman so dearly. She's an angel on this earth. She'd open up the refrigerator and she'd say, you don't have milk. She's like, we're, we're going to the store. I'm like, okay, your microwave's broken. We're fixing your microwave. Have you signed <laughs> in up for the SAT? And I'm like, the SAT? She goes, get your computer. She came for four weeks and just made sure that I was functional. Because you know what it is. People call, what can I do? And you're like, nothing. Nothing. I remember putting a Facebook post out. Maybe it was a month or so after Ted died. And I said, 
there weren't a lot of responsibilities that my husband had around the house, but one of them was folding the laundry and I'm rebelling. I've taken everything back, but like hell, I am not yet folding the laundry. So we have this mountainous pile on this chest and we plow through it every day to find what we need. It's all crumpled and rumpled <laughs> all over the floor. And my kids are like, come on, mom. I'm like, no, I refuse. I am not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking that damn laundry. And so I wrote on the Facebook post, when you see us and we're all wrinkly and crumbly, don't you dare feel sorry for us because I am an of rebellion i love you so much that's beautiful really and then one day i went okay okay and then that was it but like i i, I like mm, i was adamant when when i used to always say to god before ted died i used to always say god bring it and then when he died i told god i am never saying that again <laughs> take it back take it back <laughs> like don't bring anything and so at six months, I remember feeling like I was supposed to say it. And I remember saying to God, I'm not. And he just started laughing at me. And he goes, you think you're not saying it stops anything? And I'm like, uh. yeah, they got it. And I'm not supposed to say damn it, God, but damn it, God. <laughs> and then I let it go. It's beautiful. We can't, we can't keep imagining this perfect way of grieving. There you know what I'm saying? Exactly. It's sloppy. It's messy. And like you created in the moment and it's awful and it's ugly. There was a, there was a girl, there were two girls in my high school when my mom killed herself. One of them was my best friend. She was the person that I actually said, I think my mom's going to kill herself. And I found out in a horrible way, but um, I came home from school and there was a business card in the door saying, Fred Macroline, please call us Santa Monica to police department. It had happened before because my mom would turn herself in for being guilty of being a bad mom. So I called my dad at work. He worked an hour away, hour and a half away. And I said, mom's turned herself into the police department. They want you to call. He said, okay. And so he calls me back like 15 minutes later. And he said, she's gone. And the, like, this is in all the movies because it sounds so not true. But I said, gone where? And he said, Heather, she's gone. Like, I don't understand. Where has mom gone? And then he said, she's dead. And he said, I'm coming home. Will you be okay? <laughs> Which is like such a stupid thing. Yeah, it'd be great. And I'm like, yeah. And I remember calling my best friend, asking her to come and she couldn't, like there was no way to come. So I know I went into shock because he sent somebody over, a dear friend of my mom's. And I know she was there because I remember her being there. But the next thing I remember is my dad being home. And that was an hour. But my friend thought it would help. And I know this was with good intentions, but like, I was so pissed. If she told everyone that my mom had killed herself so that people at school were really nice to me. Oh. So I had all these people coming up. And one jerk said, you must have really been an awful kid. And I just want to, but there was a mutual friend with my girlfriend who I just started having lunch with. 
Laura, she's one of my best friends. And she said to her mom, there's a girl whose mom just killed herself. What do I do? And her mom being really, really smart said, do you like her? And Laura said, yeah, actually a lot, mom. She goes, have her over for dinner. And then her mom would not let Laura come home with me. And her mom would drive me home. We'd pull up into my driveway and every week she'd say, how are you? And every week I would say what every stupid person in grief says is, you know, I'm okay. And then I'd leave. And on the fourth time she said, how are you? And I lost it. She was the first person I lost it with. At my mom's funeral, all these people were coming up and they were saying, call, call me if you need me. And I smiled and said, thank you. And I realized like, there's no way in hell you want me to call you. And so I, I didn't call anybody, but Laura's mom really wanted to know. I'm sure she wasn't the first person who really did, but I felt it. And she was this perfectly pious, pristine, little pearls, perfect little manicured woman. I'm this like big bear of a woman falling all over, snots everywhere, tears everywhere. Like she had to be so revolted and she did not cringe. And she just held me. I don't even know how long I sobbed. And she said, what is it that you need? And I said, I need a family. And she said, you have one. And I said, I need a different one. And she said, where are you going to find it? And we did not come from a religious family at all. But I said, I think I'm supposed to go to church. And that's where my spiritual quest really, really launched. So what's been interesting is I've kind of gone through life always looking for a family. And I do have my own with, with me and my two kids, but it's been interesting how the families I'm a part of end or are disowned. And I know that's part of my journey here and my journey of death that families change and sometimes families change because of death and there is the place of needing to find how you cultivate that essence for yourself even if it's not your biological hmm. and that can be hard but it also is beautiful because there's people like Laura or Susie or Laura's mom or, or my friend Janine who reached out, you know, and was praying for me on the toilet. There's people who love you so dearly because they love you so dearly. And if anyone listening is recent to going through grief, really let those people love you because that is where a lot of healing can happen and a lot of connection beyond. Sometimes your family is that. And if you have that, hallelujah, I'm so grateful for you. But for a lot of us, it's not them. And mm. you still need 
to feel like someone can help you hold your pain, even though no one will ever know your pain. That's something that I'm very clear with, with clients. And especially when I'm working with couples that you will never understand the other person. There's no way you can, you haven't lived their life. You don't feel their feelings. You don't think their thoughts. You don't believe their beliefs. You'll never truly understand. We try, but it's still always from our perspective. Anyway, it's my perspective of what I think you're feeling, it's all detached. And I said, it's so much more honoring to just be with. So be with, and then in whatever way you can. And isn't that we, what we want? People to be with us. To hold our hand if we need our hand held, or to hug us if we need a hug. To bring a casserole if you need a casserole. <laughs> but there's a place when our heart has been so devastated by loss. To try to let yourself see that there is so much heart still in the world even if it's not really coming toward you yet the world does love you there will be some people who won't for sure but the world loves you the earth truly loves us nature loves us and and you know how it is there's so many signs that happen after someone passes whether it's you know monarch butterflies or birds or pennies or leaves or songs coming on or mm -hmm. you know I had to put my dog down just recently. She was 17. She was Ted's dog. Hmm. And my daughter wouldn't let me do it alone, but it was time. And so she came up and as we're going into the vet, I said, Ted, please be here. Please be here. And so as they open the door where we're going to go to lay her down, there's an angel baseball blanket, which was my husband's favorite baseball team. And my husband was a baseball coach. So as we're putting sweet Trinity to rest, I took the blanket and wrapped it over her body. And I said, let your daddy hug you to heaven, baby girl. Mm. He's hugging you to heaven. And it was like so hard, but so beautiful. And I think that's the side of grief that I love. You have to go through hell to experience it. I know. The amount of love that you can find when you can open yourself to it. Like someone who is deeply grieved can love, I think, more profoundly than anybody who hasn't. It's just so bloody painful to go through it we can get so stuck there and at times we need to i guess because we do but it's to help us get to the other side of really recognizing the glory of love in my opinion god and what it means to be human i mean our hearts are still beating everyone everyone who we have lost theirs has stopped but our hearts are still beating and they're with us. You know, they're with us. Every memory we've ever had is with us. They're, they're energetic now. We don't get the physical view of them. But I'm hoping all of you have had the energetic. And if you haven't, if you're open to it, you will feel it. Some people don't want to be, and that's fine. Some people mm -hmm. need it to be, that's it. And that's fine. 
it's really important that you let yourself honor what you need this to be for you. And it's different for every person. You can totally experience love, but once you have those moments where your heart is completely shattered, that's when you learn the capacity to love in a way so much deeper. Those shattered heart pieces can now be put back together around the next person whose heart breaks. Love gets deeper. Connection with the world around you grows deeper and you become the masterpiece. Your beauty will come out of that. It does not feel like it in the moment. No. Your beauty and your uniqueness. And since you've had to go through this horrific pain, your uniqueness is important. And that is part of your journey. That is and that's what God can use. Because we always say, I don't if you're Christian and you believe in Jesus Christ, right? The how he died for us and how we often say no one else can understand. Like there's no one else can understand, but there's one person who felt your pain. Well, Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ gave us these experiences to have, like you said, angels here on earth. Because there's people that have experienced these things. Yeah. That it's not exactly the same because nothing can ever be exactly the same. But you're not really alone. But at the same time, you have like you have to go through sitting on the toilet crying alone. So in that matter, like only you can get yourself to keep going. So like, I think we're not alone, place. but we're alone. <laughs> right. Because I think that's the place of the, the human experience is in that place. It's the human experience that feels alone, but the spiritual experience is never. Mother Mary comes to me a lot, um, a lot. Jesus too, but Mother Mary for sure. And there was one time where I had the realization, so separation is a lie. Separation is a lie that I have put upon myself because God, Mother Mary, Jesus, spirit, whatever you want to call it, source, is always here, is always present. So there is no separation. I have created the separation, which actually isn't true. And I went, wow. And then I went to, oh gosh, but isn't that sad? Because there have been so many times I've been so dark and felt so alone. And I've wasted so much time crying. And Mother Mary's very cheeky with me sometimes, which I love. And she said to me, are you kidding me? You just found out there's no separation and you're going to do this? And I went, yeah, <laughs> why? I'm like, because I want to feel sorry for myself. And she's like, seriously? <laughs> you know you're always connected to God. You want to feel sorry for yourself that you've been disconnected at other moments? And I'm like, oh, yes. <laughs> Go for it, woman. And I sat there and felt sorry for myself for about five minutes. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? But it was a really good awareness because spiritually we never are. We feel like we are, but that's because we're coming at it from our human side. So of course we feel like we are, but it's a spiritual reality and that's different. And that is what death and loss guide us to find. And without yeah. that, I don't think you could. You have to come to your place where you feel you're alone. You feel you're abandoned. You feel you're lost to realize you're not. 
Yeah, it's just simply beautiful the way that we all interconnect and have to be broken to really be better. So the last question is, what do you wish people saw beyond your white picket fence? Mm. To know that we all suffer and there's the opportunity to truly try to reach another person's heart to find out how you can support them in where they are and how maybe you can help them see the light that you have within you to help them try to find theirs. And that's why I'm here. Thank you so much for listening. I'll miss you till next time. But if you need more, no worries. You can go back and listen to the entire first season if you missed it. And or connect with me on Instagram at Beyond with Chelsea, where you never know what's going to happen next. <laughs> Link in the show notes. And remember, lead with kindness because you never know what's going on for someone beyond their picket fence. Mm-hmm.